But we are uh, jumping back into the book of Matthew. We've been kind of working through this book over the last few years, kind of off and on, and uh, we are on Matthew chapter 22. So far we made it, kind of working verse by verse. And uh, we're going to be picking it up on uh, verse 23. We left off on 22 last time. And we're going to talk about heaven, and we're going to talk about marriage and how they relate to each other. That's uh, the situation here. Now, it's been a little while, so we need to catch ourselves up to speed to where we are at in the book of Matthew. It is about one week, actually it's only a few days now in Matthew chapter 22, until Jesus' crucifixion. So these are the last final days full of a lot of drama, filled with a lot of excitement, a lot of controversy. It's Passover season. And during Passover, there would be over 180,000 people in Jerusalem, camped out all through the city, outside of the city. It would be packed. Everybody would come. It would be a huge week-long festival, and everybody's there. Jesus is there. His disciples are there. But before Jesus arrived at the Passover festival, you remember, he came in, kind of this grand entrance. He came riding in on a donkey. And they were waving palm branches and laying their coats down on the road. This was pointing to all kinds of Old Testament prophecy about Jesus being the Messiah. So Passover, everybody's there. Jesus rides in. He would have come over that bridge over the between the Mount of Olives and the temple on his donkey, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. And he comes into the temple, and while he is there, he he overturns the people who are uh, exchanging money. And he kicked out a lot of the animals because there was a lot of unfair trading going on in the temple. And uh, so he did healings. He's done some amazing things. So this is kind of the background. The Pharisees have been challenging him uh, all throughout the book of Matthew. And uh, and even into Matthew 22, the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus. They were trying to kill Jesus. They were trying to make him look foolish because he he had um, a lot of popularity. But no one could make a fool of Jesus. Jesus answered every question with this amazing wisdom. And so the Pharisees pull back a little bit, at least in challenging Jesus with question. But a new group stands up. A new group comes to challenge Jesus, and they are the Sadducees. And they're a bit of a mysterious bunch, but here's a little bit of their background. These guys were the sort of the aristocratic, wealthy people who were part of the ruling class of the Jews. Uh, They were uh, uh, quite rich. They were very unfriendly, according to the historian Josephus, even like between each other, didn't really like each other. They did not like the Pharisees at all. They would partner with Rome. Uh, Israel was occupied by Rome at that time, and uh, the Jews did not like Rome. But the Sadducees, when it was to their benefit, would side with Rome. And so the Sadducees were not liked by the common people. The Pharisees were very much liked by the common people, but the Sadducees weren't. Uh, They're kind of today like, uh, you know, like those sort of politicians who do backroom deals just to kind of further their own money and interests. That's kind of the Sadducees of this day. And so they were not that popular. But they were the guys in charge of the temple. Uh, Most of the high priests, including the high priest that was uh, there during the time of Jesus were Sadducees. The selling of animals in the temple, the exchanging of money was one of the ways these Sadducees got rich. And so most of the time when the Pharisees were challenging Jesus, 
The Sadducees were probably in the background going, yeah, Jesus, because they were making a fool of the Pharisees, and they didn't like the Pharisees. And they were probably sort of indifferent about Jesus, not really caring what he was doing so much, but they were happy probably that, you know, Jesus was making a fool of the Pharisees sometimes. But when Jesus comes into the temple and overturns their business, all of a sudden, Jesus has their attention. And now they're going to challenge Jesus. Now, their theology was kind of like um, sort of a modern-day deist. A deist is someone who believes that that God isn't really involved in this universe. He created the universe, but just kind of stepped back. He doesn't really care what's going on. He doesn't know what's going on. The Pharisees, or the Sadducees, uh, thought that God didn't even see evil. That's how distant God was. Uh, They did not believe in life after death. And the reason they did not believe in life after death was because the Sadducees only held to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all. They didn't hold to any of the rest of the prophets or the Psalms. And because they couldn't see anything about life after death in the first five books of Moses, uh, they, they didn't believe it. Uh, the rest of the Jews, the Pharisees, of course, did because there are other places in the Old Testament which talks about this. Like, namely, Dan, Daniel 12 says, Many of those whose bodies lie dead and, bur- and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. Isaiah says, those who die in the Lord will live. Their bodies will rise again. Those who sleep in the earth will rise up and sing for joy. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are lots of images of life after death, but not in the first five books of the Bible, according to the Sadducees. So they were... They believed God was distant. Uh, they did not believe in life after death. And so they, they ponder with each other, what kind of question can we ask Jesus to make him look foolish and this idea of the resurrection look foolish? And so here is their best shot. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, that is, There's no life after death. When people die, they're never going to rise from the dead. Just none of that. They didn't believe it. And they asked Jesus a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh, after them all, the women died, uh, the woman died, sorry, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And so this woman had technically seven different husbands over her life. And in Jewish thinking, for a woman to have more than one husband was just, was just, Blasphemy was wrong. It was horrible, yeah. And, and so the idea of going to heaven and the resurrection and this woman having seven different husbands in the resurrection was just so crazy that they say, Jesus, well, what about this? Again, they're trying to make Jesus look foolish and they're trying to make the idea of life after death look foolish. And this idea comes from uh, actually an Old Testament law, which is kind of crazy when you read it. It says this, if two brothers are living together on the same property 
and one of them dies without a son, his widow may not be married to anyone from outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother should marry her and have intercourse with her to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law. It's the duty of the brother-in-law, right? The first son she bears to him will be considered the son of the dead brother so that his name will not be forgotten in Israel. But if a man refuses to marry his brother's widow, she must go down to the town gate and say to the elders assembled there, my husband, brother, brother, refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He refuses to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law by marrying me. The elders of the town will summon him and talk with him. If he still refuses and says, I don't want to marry her, the widow must walk over to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. And then she must declare... This is what happens to a man who refuses to provide his brother with children. Uh, ever afterward in Israel, his family will be referred to as the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off. And so that would be your, your little nickname for the rest of your life. And it's like, okay, this is a really weird law. <laughs> Number one, we've got to remember we're not under the Old Testament law anymore. The Old Testament law was given to govern the nation of Israel, those ancient people, not to govern us, okay? We're not under the law, we're under grace, under the new covenant. The reason God put this law in place was because in that day, uh, the family name was, was everything. Uh, the, the family name was everything. All a family's possessions from generation to generation to generation were passed down through the family name. And so if there were no offspring all of the possessions would, would no longer be in the name of that person. So this is a way that possessions would be kept in a family. This is a way to preserve the name. Now, we never actually see in the Bible anybody actually doing this. There were two attempts, and both times the men refused. One was in the story of Ruth, right? And it's a good thing the man refused because then she met Boaz, and that was a real love story, right? And the other was Tamar. It didn't happen either. And so obviously it uh, didn't happen very often. But they used this text to say, Jesus, this is silly, right? If this woman has a husband and he dies and they have no kids and then another husband and he dies and another woman and seven husbands, they're all dead and there's life after death, what in the world is going to happen? So Jesus answers. He says, you are wrong. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. They didn't know the Scriptures, and they didn't know the power of God. And, you know, usually this is the case when we're wrong, too. <laughs> it's one of these things. Uh, we're wrong because we don't know the Bible, or we forget the power of God. I mean, this book is, is like our operator's manual, is our owner's manual. I mean, God is the one who created us. He knows what we need to be happy. He knows what we need for joy. He knows what we need to be satisfied. He knows what actually should happen in a marriage for it to really work. He knows how we are to love each other. He knows what, it, what brings us passion. He knows the future and the past. And He's written it down in here for us. And if your life is going astray and things are not working out and, and you just have these longings that aren't fulfilled and, and, and you know, the, your life seems broken... God has given you an operator's manual. 
And we need to be in this book, reading this book. It's good to be in there every day just reading some because we need to, God speaks through this book. And so many times our mistakes are because we fail to know the Word of God. And it's so awesome if you can get to a place where you have certain scripture memorized and you're going throughout your day and, you're, and your life all of a sudden goes into a ditch. You go, oh, I know that scripture. And you can put it back on the road and keep going, right? You need to be in this book. I mean, Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone. But every word that comes from this book, this is to be a meal for us, that we're in this book, studying this book, so that we don't go off the wagon, Right? And also the power of God. You know the reason we make mistakes in life is because we fail to realize the power of God. There is no situation that is too hard for God. I mean, even if it seems like it's too late and it's past due and over time, God's still bigger than that. And I don't know what you are struggling with today, but you need to realize that nothing is impossible for God. And you lean on His Word and you lean on His power and we walk through life seeing everything through His Word and through His power. And man, that just solves so much of life's issues. I mean, the reason the Sadducees were wrong because they didn't know the Scriptures and they didn't know the power of God. But, but Jesus goes beyond this. He actually uh, answers this question somewhat. He says, For in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have, have you not read what is said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And the reason they are astonished, because Jesus here, from the very books that they believe in shows them that there is life after death. Because the reason the Sadducees didn't believe in life after death was because in the book of Moses, they didn't see it. But Jesus says, here it is. Because when God was talking to Moses, He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And these people had died hundreds of years earlier. God didn't say, I was the God He says, I am the God. In other words, these people are very much still alive. That there is life after death. And this is what the Bible teaches. That death in many ways is is definitely not the end. It is just kind of like walking through a door. Okay? You're spending your day outside and you open the door of your house, and you walk in the door, and all of a sudden your surroundings are different, and you're still there, and that's what death is. I mean, we're living this life on this planet here. Death comes. All of a sudden, we don't disappear. We don't vaporize. All of a sudden, it's like we're in a different room. I mean, simply death biblically is the separation of your soul spirit from your body. That's all death is. It is not at all the end. And First uh, Corinthians chapter 5 says this, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God Himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies, right? Tired, sick, we get old and things start hurting, and right? And 
things happen or worry in our present bodies. And we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. I mean, we have this longing that it would be so great if I had a perfect body. You know, all this stuff in the world where, you know, you need to be skinny and fit and you've got to look perfect and you need to have, you know, plastic surgery so you look good and all this longing that everybody has for this perfect body, that that will be fulfilled one day. We, that God has this new body, this perfect body waiting for us. And we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. Okay? And this is a mistake some people think, is that when we die, we're just going to be floating around like a ghost for all eternity. And, and I think that might be cool for a little while, but uh, I always wanted to like, woo, I guess you wouldn't do that in, in heaven. But I mean, we're not going to be spirits without bodies. That God is actually going to give us a new perfect body that is very much would resemble our current body, but would be perfect in every way. I mean, just imagine your physical body being perfect in every way. No aches, no pain, no pimples, no acne, no hair falling out, no needing for knee replacements. Just, just perfect in every way. And this is coming in this new body. So we will not be spirits without bodies. Now, there's kind of a difference in Christianity. Some people believe that when we die, that... Our soul and spirit go to heaven. Our bodies go in the ground, obviously. And then we will stay as disembodied spirits until the return of Christ. And when Jesus returns, then our bodies will be uh, resurrected or transformed. And then our physical body will connect with our soul and spirit. So there's some who believe that, that everyone who's died in Jesus now are, are basically disembodied spirits in heaven until the return of Christ. Other Christians believe that as soon as we die, we receive our glorified body. And so two different views within Christianity. But either way, we're getting them. Okay? <laughs> While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. Right? I think that happens as soon as you get over 40, probably. January for me, anyways. <laughs> but it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. In other words, we don't want to just be floating around as spirits all for eternity. That kind of, kind of, kind of sounds weird, right? Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. And, and that's a guarantee. That if you're a Christian and have the Holy Spirit in you, this is a guarantee that God one day is going to give you a brand new, perfect, renewed body that will never have an ache, never get sore, never look ugly. It'll be perfect in every way. And that's coming. Okay? Now these bodies, these physical bodies, are not just to be, you know, sitting on a cloud eating cream cheese, like Philadelphia commercial, right? I mean, some people are kind of like, oh, it's heaven. This is going to be so boring, you know, just kind of white and maybe one street of gold and Peter there. And, you know, this is a, totally a wrong idea of heaven. Uh, the Bible actually teaches that we will spend eternity not in heaven, but on a new earth. The Bible says God is creating a new heaven and a new earth, and the new earth is actually going to be our home. So just as our bodies will be renewed and made perfect, that we are going to spend all eternity on a renewed earth that is made perfect. Here's some verses. Then I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Or 2 Peter 3, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? In other words, those, you know, those things that you're working so hard for, I mean, one day they're going to all burn. Sometimes it's helpful to remind that. Of all those cars and houses and those stuff that we love, it's all going to burn one day, okay? So don't take it so seriously. Fun! Yeah, it's fun sometimes, but don't take it too seriously, right? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. It's kind of weird. And we actually look forward to the day of God and it says we can speed the day of Christ's return. That's kind of weird, right? No one quite knows what that means, but lots of different opinions. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. That we are actually going to be on this new earth and probably maybe have access to the new heaven. But this will be our home. And so don't picture, you know, some sort of fluffy ghost floating around in fluffy clouds. I mean, that's just totally the wrong idea. Picture a perfect Jesse, a perfect you, living in a perfect world. No earthquakes, no tornadoes, no you know, environmental problems, no bears or cougars that are going to eat you or whatever. Right? Just perfect in every way. Uh, Randy Alcorn wrote a brilliant theological work on heaven. I think the book is called Heaven. If you want to read it, it's all about this. But he says this, The biblical doctrine of the new earth implies something startling. That if we want to know what the ultimate heaven, our eternal home, will be like, the best place to start is by looking around us. We shouldn't close our eyes and imagine the unimaginable. We should open our eyes because the present earth is as much a valid reference point for envisioning the new earth as our present bodies are a valid reference point for envisioning our new bodies. And so when we picture our new bodies, we don't think four legs and a cow head and a, you know, a, you know, a moose tail. Or I guess they, they have tails. I don't know. You know a cow tail or something. We, we, picture, we picture us, but just better and perfect. And so when we think of the new heavens and the new earth, we shouldn't think like Mars or, you know, we think a newer, better planet. And so, I mean, just imagine a perfect body, a perfect world, perfect relationships, never any conflict or emotional toil or lack of love or gossip or judgment. It's all perfect. And the best thing is, we will have a perfect relationship with God. The presence of God, like a lot of the references to like Gen- uh, Revel- uh, Revelation 22 is a picture of the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve walked with God. And we will walk with Jesus. We will walk with God in a perfect relationship. We'll hear him perfect. We'll have perfect intimacy and it's going to be beautiful. And this whole picture of the new heavens and the new earth and a, a perfect relationship with God and a perfect relationship with the other, each other is to give us a lot of hope in this world of struggle and pain and sorrow. And this is what the Bible says, for like Romans 8. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory He will reveal to us later. 
So what we suffer now is nothing compared to how amazing heaven is. And so what we suffer now, you just picture something horrible for a moment. Picture Nazi Germany, death camps. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Now, the idea of the death camp is the most horrible, awful thing you could ever imagine. Now, for that to be considered nothing, this new heavens and new earth must be a billion times mind-blowingly good, right? It must be just so incredible that if we could look back at rape or hardship or struggle or suffering and say, that was nothing. Man, that's what we're thinking about. This something that is so incredible that the last thing you would ever want to do is miss this. You don't want to miss this. Or Isaiah 65 says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Now, God is not going to erase our memories. Okay, we're not going to end up in heaven and not remember anything here. We're still going to remember everything, but it's going to be so fabulous that we're not going to really, it's not going to put us down. It's not going to cause us sorrow because it's going to be so amazing. I mean, the reality for us is this is as worse as life gets. I mean, if you're in a place where you're like, man, life sucks and life couldn't get any worse than this. I mean, you just start lifting your eyes to the new heavens and the new earth and your new body and new fellowship and a perfect relationship with God. And this is to give you hope. This is to keep you going. This is to keep you moving forward because this is coming. The new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus says, God is the God of the living, not the dead. I mean, those people that we know who died in Jesus, man, they're very much alive. They're enjoying uh, heaven, right? Uh, they're enjoying this. And again, there's some people who think like the new heavens, new earth, because it's outside of time, that it's already a reality there and we're already there and it kind of gets weird. I mean, there's other people who think it's still in the future because heaven's in time. Some of those funny debates. But uh, back to the other question. <clears throat> He says this, talking about this whole new earth, new heaven, new bodies. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so we obviously know that angels don't get married. If you ever wanted to know, did they get married? No. Uh, but Jesus says that people, he's talking about people, neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so... The historical kind of standard Christian view on this is that there's no marriage in heaven. So uh, if you are married now, when you end up in the new heavens, new earth, you won't be married anymore. And some people are like, yes, finally a way out, right? <laughs> uh, hopefully that's not you. <laughs> I mean, hopefully, I mean, when I think about my relationship with, with my wife, I love my wife. We've got a great marriage, have a lot of fun. I kind of, whenever I think about this, I'm like, oh, that's a bummer. It's like, I don't know if I want to go there. I mean, this doesn't sound, and it's kind of a damper because we have a great marriage, but some people look forward to this <laughs> because, uh, right? Uh, but neither are married nor are given in marriage. So uh, they would say, if you're married now, when you get to heaven, you will no longer be married. Marriage is dissolved in heaven. And they would say, and this group would say, hey, but if, uh, but if you ever think it's going to be less than here, then you just got the wrong idea of heaven. Because whatever joys we have here, they're going to be way more in heaven. And even if you're not married in heaven, your relationship with your spouse here is going to be way better because there's going to be no sin. 
for the first time, you'll actually understand your wife perfectly and your husband. You will just... You won't have issues with that, right? There'll be no conflict. It'll be perfect in every way. So, so this, guy, this group says, yeah, no marriage in heaven, but it's going to be an amazing relationship. But you're going to have kind of a similar marriage-like relationship with everybody. You're going to have this, this, this close relationship with, with everyone. Now, the deeper question here that, that, that is asked sometimes is, well, does this mean there's going to be no sex in heaven? And uh, the, sort of the standard Christian view would say, say no, because there's no marriage in heaven, there would be no sex in heaven, and, and that's kind of that. And so that's the one view. But there are other Christians who say, no, not so fast. Okay, not so fast. There's only one verse, they would say, in the Bible that says there's no marriage-like thing and it's only this one. Everywhere else in the Scriptures, marriage is painted in a positive light. We see uh, in the beginning, before sin ever entered the world, there was Adam and Eve in this perfect relationship. So other Christians will challenge this and say, well, there may not be marriage in heaven, but maybe there will be marriage-like relationships in heaven. Because um, a lot of the reason for marriage is because of sin. Because you need, you need to make, it, make a contract, you need to make a covenant, and you need to promise that you're going to be faithful and not commit adultery and these kind of things, right? And, and in heaven, there will be no sin. So maybe there will be marriage-like relationships without an official marriage ceremony. I mean, we see Adam and Eve. We don't see them going like some official marriage ceremony, but they were together and had a sexual relationship, even though they, you know, I guess they didn't technically, depends how you look at it, they would say that was not marriage in those days before the fall. They would also argue that our new bodies, that no Christian believes that our new bodies are going to have like no sexual organs. They're going to be renewed bodies, and so if they have sexual organs, what are they going to be used for if not for, for sex? Now, uh, maybe there'll be no need for kids because everybody lives forever, but sex is more than that. It's also for pleasure. The whole song of Solomon book in the Bible is about a sexual union between two people for the purpose of pleasure. And so other people say there probably may still be marriage-like relationships. There's probably still going to be sex. Even Billy Graham once said, uh, I don't think it was Larry King Live, that he said there will probably be sex in heaven. So, I mean, a lot of these things we just don't know, Right? But we know whatever is going to be our ultimate joy is going to be there. I mean, we're never in heaven going to go, oh, really? That's not there? Darn. You know, it's going to be perfect and joyous in every single way. Now, this still hits the question, like, if there's still marriage-like relationships, well, what happens to a woman who has, you know, seven husbands or how's that all going to work? We don't know. Maybe we don't know the power of God. Um. I have so many questions about heaven I can't answer, right? I don't think, again, that God's going to erase all of our memory. And I kind of wonder, well, what if I have family members that, that, that don't receive the keys to the king, kingdom and don't, aren't going to be a part of the new earth? I mean, how is heaven going to be heaven when they're not there? I mean, how's that going to work? And we could ask a hundred other questions that we don't know, but, but God is so much bigger than all of that. He's going to be able to figure that out. But in the end... It's going to be beautiful and marvelous and wonderful and great in every single way. And the point is, and Jesus brings this up, is in many places in the Bible, it's just, you need to be there. Are you going to be there? Are you a part of the kingdom now? I mean, this place, we know that we've talked about the new heavens and the new earth. It's a perfect place, and we know that. But we're not perfect. 
I'm not perfect. I mess up. I sin. I do things that I shouldn't do sometimes. And, 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 and yet Jesus makes me perfect for heaven. The only way for you to be made perfect for the perfect world to come is to have Jesus make you perfect. And in Christ, in a relationship with Jesus, He has paid for every one of your sin. The punishment has already been dealt with on the cross and so there's no more punishment to come. So when you stand before God, it's already been washed away and He sees you as perfect and He's going to, you step on it and He's going to transform you. And so if you are here and you don't have a relationship with Christ, man, He changes your life so much here and amazingly in the future. And it's going to be awesome. And I hope all of you friends here are going to be there with me because I'm going. Amen? Amen. Let's stand as we close in prayer. If uh, any of you need prayer, I'm not sure if there's anybody here from the prayer team, but I'll be up here. I'll be happy to, maybe Curtis can be up here. We'd be happy to pray for you if you have any prayer requests. Uh, otherwise, let's uh, close in prayer. Uh, God, we thank you, uh, God, that you are so good. God, we thank you that you have washed away our sin. You've given us new life. You've given us power. And God, we are so excited about the new earth to come. But God, I pray as well that you would help us to realize that your kingdom is already at work here. and It is growing and we're to pray, God, that your will would be done here as it is in heaven, that God, we would even now begin making the new heaven and new earth a reality in, in the way we love you and love people. So God, we need your blessing. We need your power. We need your hope to be alive and well in us this week. So God, would you be with us? Would you empower us? And God, I don't know if there's food here for the potluck, but it is potluck Sunday. If there's some, yeah, we pray your blessing over it. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.